1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For September 8th, 2022, it's the semi-fascist edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C., and I am joined by John Dickerson of CBS News in New York who has a new job we're going to hear about in Slate Plus. Hello, John. Hello, David. Whoa, what is that theme music, John?
2: John has his own theme song.
0: (laughs) Excellent. I, I tried to get them to do the pew, 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 but nobody would follow me up on it.
2: And that is crushing and inexplicable.
1: And, of course, that's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. This week on the GabFest, will a special master in the Trump classified documents matter derail a criminal case against the president? Then President Biden calls MAGA Republicans semi-fascist. Is he right? Was it a wise thing to say also? And then the water catastrophe in Jackson, Mississippi, and what it portends for the future of the United States and the world. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about John Dickerson's new fascinating new job and new gig and new everything Judge Eileen Cannon the most sympathetic judge former President Trump could possibly have found in fact He went out to find her and that's why he was she was the sympathetic judge ordered the appointment of a special master in the Mar-a-Lago documents case Stopped DOJ officials from using the documents recovered in any criminal case against Trump for now and opened the door for the ex-president to make And on its face, ludicrous claim that some of the documents he apparently stole from the country are, in fact, subject to executive privilege and only he gets to deal with them. So, Emily, why does ruling incense so many people, even even to the extent that it incensed Bill Barr?
2: Yeah, that's interesting how Bill Barr is emerging as one of the chief critics, even as a new book by uh, the former U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Manhattan accuses Barr of monkeying around with various prosecutions. Maybe we can talk about that later.
0: Well, he actually accuses him of essentially lying.
2: Yes, precisely. This ruling is just so out there. I mean, its conception of treating a former president— with these incredibly special velvety kid gloves. God forbid a hair on his head should go out of place. There's this kind of premise that he has some kind of property right or executive privilege claim on these documents that do not belong to him, given the Presidential Records Act. And so now we're going to litigate these questions that frame the whole case in a way that is... Super good for former President Trump and bad for the government and for no good legal reason that I think really like anyone other than this judge can see. And it's going to cause a lot of delay, which, of course, is Trump's favorite legal tactic. That seems like the main likely effect is that appointing the special master, a review of all 11,000 of the documents when really the judge could have ordered a review of a far smaller number. I mean, it just seems like such a waste of time and so much throwing up of dust.
1: And Emily, just to continue on this, there is this ambiguity, which the your hometown paper, The New York Times, dealt with today uh, about whether the DOJ is even going to appeal this, that there is a sense that this is a legally outrageous decision by Judge Cannon. On the other hand, things that seemed legally outrageous have now become normed in a world of Trump-judged America. And an appeal might, A, take a long time, and B, might fail.
2: Yeah. I mean, so the issue is, do you go up to the 11th Circuit, which has um, a majority of Republican-appointed judges on it, I actually think this ruling by Judge Cannon is so bad that it would be struck down by the 11th Circuit. It just has, like, lack of rule of law written all over it. Maybe I'm naive, but I would like to think this is not the kind of case that a bunch of sober-sided appellate judges would um, agree with Judge Cannon about. But it would take a long time. That's what a full-on appeal would do. And what Cannon did that really matters is she hamstrung the government's criminal investigation because DOJ is not supposed to be considering the content of these documents in the further steps it takes. It is allowed to keep this review going by the Director of National Intelligence right. to like protect the nation. And there's this weird notion those two things are completely separate, the criminal investigation and that review. But the criminal investigation matters to the government. They want to keep pursuing it. And so, you know, there's some chance they could lose at the 11th Circuit. And there's a lot of chance that delay is just not worth it and that they're better off trying to get a decent special master and get the judge to agree to some kind of timely process that just moves things along.
0: That's an important point about the the director of national intelligence, though, um, because there are live issues here. And I talked to Mike Morell, the former acting director of the CIA, about this this week. And I guess what made, there were two things he said that clarified things for me. I mean, one is not only what's in these documents. So, you know, top secret, the top secret classification is determined by the damage that can be done if the information is found out. Which um, I guess I'd never really thought about it that way. But, but the reason it's useful in this case is... It, it goes some distance to what the DNI is supposed to do, which is determine if there is damage here. But if it had the word top secret on the cover of the sheet, it already means there's damage because that's what the whole top secret designation is, which is if this information gets out, either a CIA asset can get killed Or other countries will know what we're looking at. Both our enemies and our allies will know how and what we're spying. So it's like if you, (laughs) it's like if you launched an investigation into whether dropping a match into that barrel that was delivered to your front door would be dangerous. All you have to do is look at the label on the barrel that says, don't drop a match in here because it's gunpowder and it'll explode. That's what Top Secret is saying. So this question of exactly what's there and whether it's a threat to national security does continue on and should be relatively quickly uh, or relatively possible for to be determined, even though the Department of Justice has been put to the side.
1: John, one of the things I'm interested in your thoughts about is this reconceptualization of the understanding of the president, that there's somehow a personal right that inheres to an ex-president to Control documents, control records, rather than the president being, in some ways, a, a faceless steward of an institution, whose job it is to to run the country, to be the executive of the country, but who is himself not personally doesn't have any ownership. He doesn't own the White House. He doesn't own the cutlery in the White House. He doesn't own any documents. Everything he does is a, is in service to the nation. And then instead, this idea that no, actually, is there is a personal uh, uh, ownership and, and psychic ownership that a president has over papers has over a privilege over the conversations he's had with other government employees, which seems outrageous. It seems, it seems outrageous that that should be a changed understanding of what the presidency is.
0: Yeah. Well, that's why you've put your finger on the outrage there at the end, because you have to make up an entirely new office and with new rules And no traditions in order to support the latter finding. The whole point of the office is that it is, you're exactly right, you're a temporary occupant, you are a steward of a trust, and when you leave, um, you don't get to take the, you know, the bath soap with you. You know, in this case, obviously, it's more than some trinket. Uh, that you're given in the White House. This is the most delicate and sensitive and important and goes to the core and central point that you're making, which is there are interests and particularly in this most delicate area of national security, that are the country's interests. And as a president, you have awesome and and massive power as guardian of those interests for a period of time. And if the people decide that somebody else should be the guardian of those interests, then those most sensitive things, that most vital and important stuff, goes to the next person. It ain't yours. And that's like the central thing. It ain't yours. And And also, by the way, so, that's clearly the case. And then secondly, why does he have this stuff? There's no reason he's given. He's given excuses for why he should have it, but there's no there's no reason he should have it. It's illegal based on the Presidential Records Act, and it's obviously a threat to national security by my understanding
1: of just what that top secret designation suggests. Yeah. I mean, also, he doesn't get to keep the trinkets, by the way. Just if if you don't get to keep keep the trinkets, you sure the hell do not get to keep the the documents which have classified information in them.
0: You can't put the Lincoln bed into the U-Haul and say, here, I'm heading back to to Mar-a-Lago. It's nuts, but it's totally in keeping with the view of the presidency as a prize with all of these gadgets and functions that you get to enjoy for your own sake rather than to use them in the furtherance of a stewardship job.
2: I was trying to think about whether there's any legitimate scenario where you would want a former president to be able to retain some executive privilege, right? Because like the reason the answer is no is you think that the president and the presidency are supposed to be broad-minded enough and protective enough of the office that you expect the next president to just... Kick in and protect any executive privilege that really does attach the office in a, you know, kind of nonpartisan way that if there was an ex-president who had reasonable grounds, then the current president would respect them and all of the lawyers who think about the presidency would get that and that we can kind of like trust the office to like... Have the back of the former president. But you could imagine some scenario of, you know, a Trump-like president who doesn't care about rule of law in which the former president's privilege gets revoked in a way to, you know, take revenge, attack political enemies, etc. Anyway, I just have been trying to think about that. Because it's a tiny bit of an unresolved question legally. We have yeah. lots of suggestions, not lots. We have a few suggestions from the Supreme Court in previous cases, for example, about Richard Nixon, that they're Probably isn't, but the court has left the door open to the possibility. And though I do not think this is the case, for all the reasons you have both laid out, it does seem like a kind of interesting thought experiment.
0: I think that's right, but it's but because of what we're dealing with here uh, is of a speci- such a special and sensitive nature. It's why this question is really more than just about. I mean, it's extraordinary to hear defenders of the president try to wave this away as a dispute over documents because, which is crazy, because obviously what's in the documents is quite important. In fact, they print in really big red letters that this document is distinguished from all other documents. Um, So that's sort of a lame defense. But secondarily, this goes to the heart of your understanding of the presidency and whether you can just use the job as you'd like. And that's a really big deal because when you can soften people up to that understanding, You make excuses, or it's a ready-made excuse for all kinds of behavior. And we've seen that repeatedly uh, in the way in which Donald Trump used his office. Uh, And so now they're kind of codifying that use of the office, which again requires rewriting what the office is.
1: To your point, though, Emily, I can assure you that if Donald Trump is elected president and serves again in 2025, every possible damaging conversation about Joe Biden, every potential medical record, anything about his health, anything that is traditionally considered privileged, if Trump sees an advantage, that stuff will get out, it will be released for his own political gain. Let's talk about what's in those documents for a second. There was a leak this week that among the documents Trump was holding were details about the nuclear defenses, the nuclear posture and military defenses of another country. And this was leaked to the Washington Post, or the Washington Post got information about this. And there was also even more shocking, I think, the the, the news that there were 48 empty classified folders. Although maybe that wasn't a leak. Maybe that was just implicit in the, it was on I the think that's in the court filings. Filing. Yeah, it's yeah. in the open filings. But I felt like that that leak was bad for everybody. Why? does make Trump look bad, but it also looks really cover your ass by the FBI and it looks politically motivated by the FBI that they're trying to kind of improve their case by winning in the court of public opinion, which is not a good look for them.
2: I mean, we don't know to be clear that this leak came from the FBI or the Justice Department. The Trump camp has leaked other things along the way. And I'm not talking just about this case. So let's not Jump to assumptions here. However, if the leak did come from the government, then, you know, I think you have this problem of prosecutors talking along the way rather than waiting until they have an indictment and information that really has been prepared to be public.
0: I mean, we're in this funhouse mirrors place where, again, the fact that we're even having this discussion, which is important, but we're already on turf we shouldn't be on. The documents shouldn't be there. They're not his Let's move on to the next topic, right? So the fact that we're debating what kinds of documents is already implicit in that debate as this idea that they should be there. So restipulating all of that, if there is something wrong with that reporting or a slight difference from what it actually is, then it allows those who would reshape the presidency in defense of the indefensible, some ammunition to go out and say, well, you see, they said it was this and it wasn't this. And that's, that matters.
1: I'd hate fun houses. Fun houses are not fun, but we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) The fun house mirror. Good point. We already mentioned our Slate Plus topic up above, which is that we're going to talk about John's new job. We're going to talk about his new CBS News streaming show and uh, what he's going to do on it. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. Hear John talk about that and of course as a slate plus member you get member exclusive episodes and segments from us and from other shows like slow burn and amicus and no ads on any slate podcasts and of course unlimited reading on the slate site and the psychic satisfaction of supporting the great independent journalism that slate does so go to slate.com slash plus to become a member we took it all we brought them to our
0: land an endless night
1: President Biden last week in Philadelphia made his most explicit statement yet about what has happened to the Republican Party, calling the MAGA Republican faction of the party and how big that faction is, what it composed, it's composed of is, I guess, a matter for debate. But he called it semi-fascism. So, what is fascism and semi-fascism? What did, when Biden says this, what does he mean? If you look at traditional definitions of fascism, it's, it's a belief system that society has been corrupted, usually by outside forces. It needs to be purged and controlled, that there has to be a charismatic leader who is not bound by traditional strictures of authority, usually a male charismatic leader, to keep everyone in line and purge these disruptive outsider elements to clean society because the need to clean society is greater than the need to abide by these weak and stupid and feckless rules that we've been abiding by. Is that what Biden is saying?
2: I mean, maybe. I'm, I feel a little worried about these terms getting thrown around and also a little confused. I mean, right, like I was trying to think what work semi-fascism did for him that authoritarian tendencies Wouldn't have accomplished? Like that, I feel like I understand what that is and I feel comfortable with it, right? It's like anti democratic. I think it has a lot of the elements that you just laid out. Is it different from fascism at this point? I mean, fascism historically we associate with, you know, Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. And like that's pretty easy for me. I get it. They did a particular thing at this moment in history that was really disastrous and had. All the anti-democratic, super aggrieved, like terrible attributes you just attach to fascism. But in this historically anchored way that I understand. I also know, because I keep reading it, that fascism does not just mean them in that moment. But then I start getting mixed up about all the other things it kind of bleeds into And then what I'm left with is that what Biden was trying to say and did say was his big objection is the anti-democratic, I won't accept the election results, I'm going to do my utmost to, if necessary, subvert the results of the next election. And if I have to use violence to do that, so be it. That's all really bad. Um, And I guess it's fascist, but isn't it also just like authoritarian? And and is it helpful to start calling something semi-fascist?
1: I mean, I think authoritarian, some people hear that and that's a very, has positive associations. I don't think a lot of people have positive associations with the word fascism, but authoritarianism is its idea. A lot of people would welcome the idea of someone who's a tough uh, leader who's going to clean things up. And I, I guess what I find so the two pieces of Trumpism that I find so disconcerting and worrisome are not so much the authoritarian pieces as the willingness to subvert the election, which I don't think is authoritarian, it's something else, and this this demonization of outsiders and this sense that you have, there's some people who are more American than others, and it's okay to treat these people who are less American as being less American, and that there's sort of a, a right of certain people who may make basically white people who've been here for a while to decide what America is and glean the, the the finest parts of the crop and take the nicest bits of the roast for themselves and that part I find alarming those are separate from the authoritarian streak to me
2: is fascism or semi-fascism a useful label for well, I don't think it's
1: I'm not sure that I think it's a useful label because it's just confusing for people I don't think anyone knows what it means
2: yeah. line me up in that group.
0: Yeah, I agree with both of you. And just to set the terms of the analysis here, I think the point is that this is a piece of rhetoric and it's very interesting and powerful for presidents to say things super bluntly in ways that are surprising. You expect a president to say things bluntly when America is attacked. You expect a president to say things bluntly, you know, in the course of political campaigns. And that's, of course, what this comes in. But this is bluntness um, of a different order. And James Fallows in his newsletter has a great... Uh, kind of history of some of the the, the blunt moments of um, presidential speechmaking one of the best being um, FDR when he took on the forces of great wealth in American life and and talked about this is a speech in, in 1936 in Madison Square Garden and he said that the enemies of peace were unanimous in their hatred for me and I welcome their hatred I should like to have it said of my first administration that In it, the forces of selfishness and lust for power met their match. I should like to have it said in my second administration that in it, these forces met their master. And so there's a tradition of this. But if you're going to be blunt and say something clearly and really tee it up, then it seems to me the language you use has to be, in that context. Fascism has been thrown around a lot over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, and it's lost its meaning. We can argue it down to a precise point and then people might salute that. But the the fact is it's become a sloppy word. And so if you're trying to say something clean and crisp and blunt, it
1: seems to work against that because the word has lost a lot of its meaning then what is it that you're supposed to say about Trump and Trumpism? I mean, everything has been said about Trump. Defining what the Trumpist movement is, less has been said, but almost everything has been said about that. What is it that you could say that would be strong and clear, that would be a powerful message, that would either resonate in the hearts and and moral compasses of Americans, or would get you political gain, or would you know, disgrace Trump once and for all. What is it, John? I mean, I don't, I mean, I I think it's pretty clear that semi-fascism is weak tea there. It is a low-fat yogurt, but it is, I'm not sure what's better. I would like you to tell me what's better.
0: Well, I think that before, as I've tried to think about how Democrats have to do this for themselves, I think the idea is they want power and will do what's necessary to get more of it. And that's basically it. Remember a few shows ago, I was talking about the idea that I think Democrats had an opportunity and a challenge to make a case that was larger than the individual assaults on liberty and on things they don't like, which was to make a case that Republicans always go one more, that um, whether it comes to abortion or January 6th, whenever there is an obstacle, they will jump over that obstacle by going one step further than people thought was allowed. And that that's true across a whole range of things. And that's essentially what Biden is saying here. And there's some sleight of hand, which is he's saying, these MAGA Republicans are only a small and dangerous portion of the party. And then he says, among the things they want to do. And he talks about the angry mobs on January 6th, and he's right about that. He also talks about how they're treated as patriots. He's right about that, not just in those members of the party who call them actual patriots, but the fact that for anybody who might not believe they're patriots, you're not allowed to say that out loud without getting sanctioned in the party, which is, so that's fine, but in terms of the strength of his argument. But when he says they want to take away your choice, he's expanding the group. He's taking basically the... He's trying to take the rioters and essentially say that's connected with anybody who supports uh, the Supreme Court's decision on Roe. Now, that's a much bigger group that he's bringing under that umbrella. And that's a kind of re- rhetorical slight hand that he's using there. But um, I think, David, I think basically you make the argument that that January 6th is happening in lots of other parts of American life and that that it's basically a raw effort to maintain or grab more power.
1: Emily, do you think there's a rhetorical way to make these points, or to, even just to get electoral benefit? Like, maybe maybe it's not even something grander than defining a political philosophy or, or exiling Trumpism from the polite society. Maybe it's just like, can we win a few more seats? Is there something that works to do that?
2: I mean, I think it's important to talk about defending democracy against real threats. I am not excited about um, writing off groups of people. I mean, I think in his Labor Day speech, Biden, if you read it, you can sort of imagine different sizes of groups. You can, like, accuse him of talking about 50% of the country when he was talking about extreme MAGA Republicans, or you can think that he just meant, like, the Republicans in Congress who support former President Trump. There was, like, a lot of lack of clarity there. But in general, I just don't understand the political benefit of saying a whole potentially large group of people is, like, evil, which was effectively what he was doing in some way, shape, or form. And I honestly think if you look at the speech carefully that he didn't even really mean to do that, but he didn't close the door to that interpretation. And then
3: sure.
2: in, I actually only read the transcript of the speech after reading about the speech a lot. And when I read about the speech, I thought it was had direct references in it to things like Roe and opposing same-sex marriage. But when he was in that moment of talking about extreme MAGA Republicans, I don't think he actually made those connections. But my main point is, I don't think the president of the United States should be talking in a way that opens up the possibility that he's then going to be accused of writing off nearly half the electorate. That just seems not smart.
1: Yeah, I, would just, I know you're about to say something, John. I would just like to note the kind of errant, deep hypocrisy, which is that Trump made so many speeches that were demonizing groups of people. A
2: hundred percent.
1: All the time. I mean, just he, his demonization of people was astounding.
2: And abhorrent.
1: And abhorrent. And it is, that is not to say that that gives anybody free pass to do anything. It doesn't. I agree with you from a tactical perspective. It's probably wrong for Biden to do it or a mistake for Biden to do it. But just note that all the people who are deploring Biden doing it, they stood by and let Trump do it once, twice, a hundred times.
0: It seems to me that there's uh, one way to think about this is that there is a speech to be given. There is a, if one of the jobs of a presidency is to see an urgent need, rally the country to its solution, then there is an urgent need. A third of those running for office in the midterm elections, according to 538, are election deniers. And that's not just rhetorically speaking, right? They are throwing their future, their political future and the, and in some cases, those who are already in office are using the mechanisms of office as if that is a true thing. That's more than just having sour grapes after an election. So that is a threat to democracy. The you know Georgia election officials uh, or former election officials who let Trump allies into election offices to monkey with the software—that's a threat to democracy. The people who are planning intimidation campaigns; that those are all real threats to democracy. Those aren't kidding around. And um, the fact that a kind of an anesthetizing, self-anesthetizing process has grown up where those threats among a lot of Republicans are just kind of waved away is also a problem. These are things that people who participate in the in the political process should be scared about no matter what party you're in. That's all real stuff. It's happening. It's not fake. Power in the Republican Party is is determined by a person, Donald Trump, who um, not only has been avowed to have abased the office he was in by the leaders of his own party, but believes something that those leaders say is not correct, which is that the election was stolen. And yet he's the leader of a party. Those are all corrosive aspects of democracy. So that is all seems to me is totally fair game. It is a challenge to our system and our ability to adjudicate disputes peacefully. Secondly, Joe Biden would like his team to win the election, and he would like to switch this from being a referendum on him to being all about the other guy. And that causes the sleights of hand and the rhetorical overreach, which muddies this issue. And that's a purely political thing and where it makes um, these two different objectives get in there, p- perhaps be an tension yeah, with each other. Yeah, I mean,
2: one thing I noticed about his Labor Day speech was I don't think he talked directly about Trump, right? So he wants it to be about the other guy, but then he used this extreme MAGA Republicans, I don't know if, it was seemed like kind of an obfuscation, but then it also meant he was not simply zeroing in on the actual other guy. And somewhere I read this line, which I thought was useful, which is that he turned... People from adversaries into enemies, and that that just seems politically tone deaf. The
1: one note I would like to make about something you said, a ago, John, which is a third of mm-hmm. a third of candidates are election deniers. The thing that I found shocking in that five thirty eight was not that a third were election deniers; is that so few were actual people who said the election was fair. So it's not that two thirds said the election was fair and free; it's that a third are <laughs> d- actively deny. Most of them just don't want to say anything, and then a tiny, a tiny minority right. of Republican candidates, a tiny minority, say yes. Joe Biden won the election at fair and square, and it was a fair election. Like a tiny minority. So it is. It, right. it is. It's even worse. It's like that. That there. There's this silence, which you were talking about, the silence of the people who know well and good that the election system works and they just are afraid to speak. So it's the the oppression of that MAGA group extends much further than just in that one-third.
0: And, you know, this isn't just theoretical. We have fresh, historic, in the history of the nation, evidence of what happens when you play footsie with the idea that elections aren't the final say and that violence is an okay response to that. Because there were... Days and days and days and days after which Donald Trump was falsely claiming the election was stolen and doing everything he could to further that lie. And members of his party did nothing. And the predictable thing happened, which was that there was a riot on January 6th to try to overturn the election. Like we have fresh evidence of what's, of what happens when you allow this rot to continue. Um, and that is again perfectly legitimate thing to say out loud. And it can't be refuted except by people who choose to make up um, facts and stories that don't exist. So that's all that all seems perfectly reasonable. And not only that, within the presidential tradition to try and say that now, whether it makes political sense or whether Biden undermined the clean case
1: with um, political overreach, uh, it will be up to the voters to figure out. Emily, can we just close on this briefly talking about this? amazing case in New Mexico where a state judge removed a county commissioner named Cui Griffin in New Mexico because the Constitution bars insurrectionists from holding any kind of office, even down to county dog catcher, even down to, to mayor of a small town. Um, is this a good practice to go after these traitors in the way that, that the post-Civil War government tried to keep ex-Confederate leaders from serving?
2: I'm torn about this. I mean, on the one hand, if you get convicted of an offense related to rioting at the Capitol that day, I feel like, yeah, you were an insurrectionist. Fair enough. On the other hand, I generally think it is better not to have judges decide who gets to hold office or run for office. It's just such an extreme remedy, as um, Daniel Hamill, who's a law professor at the University of Chicago, was pointing out. Right? Like, you want the voters to consider that person's behavior and have that be, the, 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 the political remedy seems better than the legal remedy here. Now, of course, the voters could decide to keep someone like that in office and that would be depressing, but taking choices out of the hands of voters, I just, ugh, I don't know. It just seems like that loops back to this problem of, you know, anti-democratic tendencies that most people should be objecting to right now in a nonpartisan fashion. And I just worry about muddying those waters.
1: I share that, although I will point out there's so many examples of where we restrict who can vote and who can serve.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's bad too, for the most part. <laughs>
1: well, you can't be you can't be elected to you can't be elected to Congress as a 19 year old. You can't be elected president as a 31 year old.
2: Okay, but those are things you overcome as you get older, right? I mean, age barriers are temporary when they're about
3: you
1: Yeah, no, but I, I guess that what I'm just saying is that there are. If you say we are going to restrict who people are going to vote for, in some fashion, I feel like preventing people from voting for people who have actively tried to overthrow the government of the nation seems like a pretty reasonable step. That's a, that's a group that, that's a group that I'm relatively comfortable excluding. I think it's, you know, it should be people who have a conviction. It should be people, it shouldn't be just, I went to the Capitol on January 6th. That should, you should have to have done something more specific than that. But, but I, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't, I didn't think that Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee should have held office in the United States after after 1861. That seems perfectly reasonable.
2: Yeah, I mean, I hear you because there is this way in which, like, it's a stigma and it should be. And maybe it's worth marking those people out. And maybe I'm just being super wimpy about the politically divisive nature of equating January 6th with uh, the Civil War. (laughs) Like, it makes me nervous because I don't think we've agreed on that as a country. But maybe I'm wrong.
1: No, for sure. And also, it's if it's good for the goose, good for the gander, it will be used. It's now going to be used against someone who's like a BLM protester who got arrested at a BLM protest and wants to run for county office in Mississippi or something.
2: Right. I mean, when you start reading, I mean, Griffin has this particular conviction. But when you start reading about the accusations against someone like the Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, it starts being about like he organized buses to go to the Stop the Steal. He was at the march. He was there, but not, you know, at the actual Capitol throwing stuff. And some of what gets held against him, and this is also true for the Republican who's running for governor in Maryland, Dan Cox, it starts to look like speech. I mean, it yeah, starts yeah. to be yeah. speech. It that starts speech. to be like, I thought this, you know, yeah. let's fight or whatever. And yeah. then you think like, oh my God, this is really something that is going to get used against people of all kinds of ideological persuasions.
0: And that's this, And that's one of the distinctions that also feels right about claiming the election was stolen. It's one thing to rhetorically say that and as you know as some democrats did after 2016 but it's another thing to put that into practice and that's the line that is different here that separates those who've decided to build their career and the actions of their career on that lie and those who just rhetorically overreached after 2016 and muddying that line is used by a lot of people to get away with things.
3: and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We’ll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that’s June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at Tribecafilm.com/slowburn. Hope to see you there.
1: I have to say, this has been a, a really depressing week. I found this a really depressing week. I was reading the stories about the European energy crisis, the kind of r- grinding war in Ukraine. The uh, I saw there was a various kinds of natural disasters in different parts of the world where tens, dozens of people killed yesterday, no one paying any attention. There was those terrible murders in Saskatchewan, those knifings in Saskatchewan where many people were killed. There was this killing spree in Memphis last night by somebody, everything seems really terrible. And then you read a story like the stories about what's happened in Jackson, Mississippi and everything seems like even worse. It was like bad and now it's even worse. So. The Jackson water crisis has eased. A week of crisis repairs to the main water treatment plant has restored water pressure in the Mississippi state capitol. But for days, a city of 150,000 people was without water. And this is a shutoff that followed many other water disasters in that city. Boil orders, partial water cutoffs to tens of thousands of people, elevated lead levels, much more. And of course, the Jackson crisis is... Hardly the only water emergency in the country. There are lots of cities, especially older, poorer cities that have decaying infrastructure in Flint uh, Seven years ago We had thousands of children exposed to dangerous levels of lead for months Undoubtedly to terrible consequences because of water problems in that city in the West We have the reservoirs that serve the Colorado River Catchment the Lake Mead and Lake Powell are at unfathomably low levels. Just everything around American infrastructure and water and climate, uh, you know, the heat waves in California. It all feels terrible, but the, we're going to talk about the Jackson crisis in particular as a, as one manifestation. It's not a climate crisis, although it kind of is, because part of the problem was that there was tons of rain in Jackson, which over, overwhelmed the, the water treatment facility. But, John, the most essential function of modern government is to deliver clean water. By definition, like literally the term we use for something that is reliable, something is, that is expected is open the tap, turn on the tap. Like it is there. You turn it on. It is there. That is the, the definitional term. And by that standard, what happened in Jackson is just is almost unthinkable.
0: Right. You can't do anything else without that basic foundation. The infrastructure is the thing that needs to be solid for anything else to take place. And that's not just in the economy. It's in the basic daily living, you know, the basic hierarchy of needs. Water is is crucial. And this has been foreseen. I mean, this has happened before in Jackson. So one big problem is just infrastructure gets ignored. And one we should talk about why it gets ignored in a way because one of the things that's happened with the bipartisan infrastructure bill is that the White House has been going around trying to sell it to communities to tell them and um for political reasons, but also just policy ones. And they've had a bit of a hard time, like, It used to be the case that everybody would say everybody loves, you know, every politician loves a ribbon cutting ceremony. And that's, of course, still true. There are people who voted against the infrastructure legislation who are touting its benefits, but it it kind of ain't like it used to be. And so I wonder about that just politically, because we pay attention to what uh, gets political attention and politicians do, too. And so why? Is infrastructure the kind of thing where it doesn't get taken care of? In one case here, it's because Jackson is an 80% Black city in a state that is not. And so the resources that flow to that city are not sufficient to its needs. And uh, I talked to the mayor of Jackson, Antar Lumumba, whose dad was mayor and who lived when he was younger, went through one of these water crises. And he's talked about the um, cycle of humiliation that happens in a community. And that's a way in which potholes, drinking water are far worse than the crises that they create because it it tells a certain population that you're just not worthy of attention. And that has generational effects that go long past when the water taps are turned back on.
1: What do you do or what do we do about the enormous gap in the capacity of the city of Jackson the people of Jackson to pay for the fixes to their water system and the need to fix it so the minimum is like a billion and just for basic fixes in a city of 150,000 that's $7,000 a person in a quite poor city and it, that's just the basic fixes it's billions more really and I suppose you say, well, this is what state power and federal power is supposed to work out, but what if it doesn't? Like the state the state of Mississippi is not that interested, as you said, John, in helping out the citizens of Jackson. Only when the emergency came did the governor who lives in Jackson, I believe, did he did he bother to show up and, and try to deal with it.
2: But I mean I think that gives the lie to the idea that you can have this incredibly stingy everyone in it for himself. Republican-controlled government that is actually treating all of its citizens well and equally, right? I mean, a a quarter of the residents of Jackson are living below the poverty line, Um, so it needs a broader tax base to solve this problem. Like, it's not rocket science. And if you want to pretend to be a government official who's addressing people's basic needs um, and just, like, having some a decent baseline of living, then you figure out a way to solve this problem. It just seems utterly absurd that you could be running a state and have your capital city that has 150,000 people in it not have water for a week and then just shrug your shoulders that you can't solve the problem. Like, go solve the problem.
1: Well, the amount of money available to the entire state of Mississippi in the infrastructure bill is $75 million for a problem that in Jackson alone, which is one but one fortieth of the city, one of the state is, is a billion dollars. So how does it get done? I understand it's like, it's clearly, this is, you know, this is embedded racism. It is the immiseration of inner cities. Like, how is it going to happen? The 38% of Mississippi that is black has practically no political power because of the way people vote in that state. So how is it going to happen?
2: I mean, I think that's an excellent question. And I'm asking for a solution to kind of transcend politics because it's an emergency. Biden declared an emergency in Mississippi over the water crisis. And so you'd expect some federal funds to flow in. But I don't have a specific answer other than like, this is a rich country. I know Mississippi is not a rich part of the country. But there's something just like shameful about this. And you have to unwind it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But is it like, why Why are we so bad at this? Like, why is it that we're <laughs> so bad at it? Why in city after city do we have these, you know, power failures, grid failures in Texas, water failures in in cities? Why? What is it that about? Is it this nation? It's just too big. We or actually we're incredibly rich and these are relatively relatively small problems we misprioritize. Well,
0: this is what I was trying to get at earlier is that I wonder, I mean, the, the notion that you can gain politically by taking big actions on behalf of people who have no political voice, does that still carry the power it once did? I mean, that's what FDR was talking about. It's what Lyndon Johnson talked about. Just as a political matter, it's what the kind of thing Biden was trying to talk about in his original Build Back Better legislation, which was taking actions now in the long term to address sometimes not seen, or at least not seen on the front page issues that permanently keep a portion of society in a disadvantage, and that it's a part of government's job to rally everybody around the big community because That's part of what we decide to do is take care of those people who don't have the advantages and to find some equitable way to put resources towards best as possible, giving them an opportunity to freedom, life and happiness. And that argument as a politically successful argument, obviously, it's not as powerful as it used to be. And so if you can't rally people behind spending the money and putting it towards this stuff, then it's got to be done through some benevolent billionaire.
1: Can I say something about that, which is I actually think there's one of the reasons why we have such trouble with infrastructure these days is that back in the days of FDR, when you were building infrastructure, you were building something that was beautiful and sexy. And if you look at the covers of Fortune and Time, cover stories in those magazines, Life magazine, often these spectacular photographs of dams, of bridges, of roads – of ports of harbors being built and infrastructure to build infrastructure in those days you were building something that was gorgeous and beautiful and visible and a lot of what is needed now is invisible and ugly and not at all sexy it's not sexy to fix a water treatment plant it is not that's just not no one no one gets excited about that uh at design school and yet it's just as important in fact you know, more important than building a dam probably. And so, so like finding, finding beautiful and inspiring infrastructure projects to be your, your badges, your marquees so that you can then also quietly fix, get money for the water treatment plant seems important to me.
0: I mean, I am wrong in the sense that, that the most recent infrastructure bill does have 50 billion, 55 billion for, um, water infrastructure. So, so I'm wrong in the sense that, you know, perhaps this collective desire to do for communities that aren't um, on the front page. Now, on the other hand, uh, the infrastructure was seen as a, a kind of unicorn in the sense that it was possible to get something done. But then again, maybe that undermines my argument too, which is that yes, the one thing people can come to to agree on is um, is infrastructure in an, in a highly polarized environment. But, maybe the maybe then the answer is yes, they're willing to do it, but it's just not sufficient to meet the need of, of a crumbling nation.
2: Is there something else going on here about the kinds of government spending that white people in particular decide they're comfortable withholding or not supporting? So, you know, when you think about... The 60s to the 80s, there's lots of fights over welfare spending and this idea that, you know, a lot of white Americans don't want to support this because they see more black Americans benefiting from it. They probably like overestimate because it never is a majority of black Americans, but to just sort of crudely um, take into account that kind of racism. Then when you have these infrastructure crises in places like Flint and Jackson, you see a different kind of withholding, right, where you have, particularly in Mississippi, but, you know, also in Michigan, Republican, more conservative control of government that tends to be dominated by white people. And then you have these cities that have concentrations of black people in it. And you see the same dynamic as withholding welfare spending of basically like these aren't our people we can turn our backs on them. And I mean, I think I th- we should... Wait, can
1: I jump in on that? Yes. It's not just that these aren't our people. They've run it so badly. Yes, they there even is take always the blaming.
2: Wait, which is familiar from the welfare context too, right? Like you just sort of, excuse me, shit all over people when actually like there are all these complicated reasons why the infrastructure is what it is that are not, don't break down along those fault lines so neatly at all. I mean, I, I just wonder if that's part of what we're seeing here because I... Am I wrong? I mean, surely someone's going to come with it, up with an example. But I think that if you have a state where people of color actually have more po- political power at statewide, then I don't think you would see these same kinds of con- concentrated crises.
1: Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, when you, John Dickerson, have finished up a hard day of streaming on CBS News a hard day of commenting and analyzing and reporting on the news and you're kicking back. What are you going to be chattering about?
0: I'm going to be chattering about a series of lectures from uh, University of Tennessee history professor, Dr. Vejas Lulevichus. I think it might be how you pronounce his name. They are part of the great courses, which is, you know, the what used to be cassette tapes, but is now audiobooks that you can download and learn about various things. And this one is called Turning Points in Modern History. And I've been listening to it on runs and various other times. And it's just great. Lots of facts that I probably should have known, but about the fall of Constantinople and Gutenberg. And I was just, I just finished listening to the one about Christopher Columbus, who, um, whose encounter with The Native Americans, I didn't realize, for example, that he took that trip three times and went to his death, still making the mistake that it was at the heart of his original trip, that he kept two sets of books for his his, uh, crew to keep them from getting disappointed. He basically lied to them. Anyway, it's full of all kinds of interesting facts, but also they're all connected. So how the printing press and how print basically determined the fact that America would be called America and not Columbia. And so they're linked in these interesting ways. Anyway, well told, um, engaging, and uh, really interesting. So I would recommend those to um, to anyone. And then also a shout out to um, Tatiana who um, said hello while uh, I was in Providence um, at a coffee shop there. And uh, it's always nice to meet listeners at the Gab Fest. Um, so thanks for saying hi,
1: Emily. What's your chatter?
2: I. Our conversation about Jackson reminded me of a piece in The Atlantic I read this week that I thought was really interesting called What's Causing Black Flight? It's by Jerusalem Dempsis, um, a staff writer at The Atlantic. And it's about the demographic shift from cities to suburbs among black people. We're used to the white flight story. But Demsis here is really trying to understand also why people, usually when they start to have a little more money, leave cities. And she... I think does a really good job with grappling with the research on this kind of what it means. And she talks about how when people move to the suburbs, they tend to do better. But the people who are left behind tend to be relatively poorer, and concentrations of poverty usually don't work out very well. Um, And then she ends with a story of her own family leaving Ethiopia and the idea that getting out is itself a marker of privilege. Um, It's a good piece. I recommend it.
1: All right. I have an amazing chatter. I am experiencing a miracle in my home, and I need to talk about it. So yesterday, I wanted a slice of bread and butter, because I love a slice of bread and butter. And I opened my cupboard, and I took out a loaf of Pepperidge Farm Farmhouse white bread, which is my go-to supermarket bread. So So boring! Though people people may very well think it's my go-to white (laughs) bread, since I am go-to white bread myself. You're my go-to white bread, John. Uh, but that <laughs> farmhouse white bread, it's so soft, it's so delicious, it's got that open crumb that's great in taking in butter, it's fluffy, uh, it's wonderful. And that loaf that I opened up was about half done, and I took a slice, and I slathered it in butter, and I ate it, and it was delicious.
2: Wait, okay. you took bread out of the refrigerator, you didn't toast it, you put butter on it, you ate it, and it was delicious?
1: Well, number one, it wasn't in the refrigerator, which is an important point. It was just okay. in my, It was in my cupboard. Okay, yeah.
0: that's a little better, but still... Was it in your bread box? And if so, how
2: big
1: is it? It was not in my box? bread box. It was just in my cupboard. It was just in a cupboard in my I could in, go on about bread
2: boxes. We got one last year. It is so great. It really okay. keeps bread fresher.
0: Wait
1: a minute. Is it a bread box or is it a crisper? I Can want... I finish my story? It's a bread I...
0: box. Well, wait a minute. This is an important... It's a bread box. So it doesn't... It's not... You don't no. plug it in anything.
1: Okay. okay. Anyway, so I was put... As I was putting this bread back, I was in its plastic bag... I thought, like, you know, I haven't had a lot of bread recently. I was just thinking, like, I hadn't had, or if i had bread, I'd had like baguettes that I'd bought or something. And I definitely hadn't had the sandwich bread. And so as I put this bread away, I happened to look at the expiration tab on it. So the bread had expired on June 7th. The bread had expired. And it was sitting in your cupboard that
2: whole time and was moldy?
1: It was sitting in my cupboard. It was still soft as a newborn baby's cheek.
2: Had you opened it?
1: I, Why are you putting butter on your babies? I'm, I mean, I'd opened it, I, it was half done, so I'd opened it several times.
2: That's really alarming how Is much preservatives are in that bread and that you are eating it.
1: <laughs> what? I was like, "What miracle is at work here? Or what, devil, what devilry is at work? <laughs> what devilry is it work in my cupboard?" It's I called just,
2: science. This and is, I don't know. It's looking bad.
0: In the Middle Ages, this would have been would have caused you to be driven from town without time to shore up your. I oxen. Don't
2: I mean that. This is. I mean, I, was, I it's haven't bought like, yeah. Pepperidge Farm store bread in a long time, but why didn't it have more? Well, neither have
1: I. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, it's incredible. We're on the cusp of fall and I'm eating spring bread.
2: It's you should a, not be doing that. That's gross.
1: It was fine. It was delicious.
0: <laughs> My dear friend, um, whose mother's house is in the very remote part of Ireland that we go to, um, uh, her mother is British and... and and the refrigerating things does not happen and throwing things away does not happen and so when we went there there was mayonnaise there from the hoover administration in the cupboard um and while we did not uh take that as an invitation to to dive into the mayonnaise somebody is uh so maybe you know expiration dates are um All a part of um, big mayonnaise or big bread in order to get us to buy new stuff rather than just holding on to the tried and true. My mother
1: dates the jam that she makes. And the other month I was in Vermont and I was opening a jar of jam and it was older than my child who was 14 years old.
2: But if you make jam correctly, I feel like that's okay, right?
1: Well, if you make bread correctly, apparently it's also okay can we get an update on corn still amazing amazing incredible
0: yeah
1: uh listeners you have also sent us chat chatters (laughs) although not as good as my pepperidge farm farmhouse white chatter i assure you of that but please keep them coming please tweet them to us something that some food that has lasted too long in your life some work of culture (laughs) what john do you
0: think pepperidge farm uh, farmhouse white bread cheddar is the farmhouse white bread cheddar of preppers like is that a market niche that they can exploit because if you're a prepper you you want
1: fresh white bread that will last throughout the rapture the thing i didn't say actually in this chatter which has now gone on for about 15 minutes is that i had (laughs) at some point at some point in july i had bought another loaf of farmhouse white because i i didn't i'd forgotten i had one and so there's this also unopened farmhouse white bread in my cupboard which is two months expired not three months expired which looks it looks awesome i mean i'm looking forward to having it in december <laughs>
0: you're either a br- you're either a bread hoarder or you're a closet prepper i think
2: you need a gift certificate to the bakery is there a good bakery by you
1: yeah but there's nothing like a well-preserved a well-preserved piece of white bread
2: No, that is not what bread is supposed to be. But you repeat yourself. That is not a thing with bread. It's supposed to be fresh. Uh,
1: (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) our listener chatter this week is from Cynthia Lerner.
2: Hi,
0: Political Gap Fest. My name is Cynthia Lerner, and I live in Northbrook, Illinois. What I'm going to be talking about at cocktail parties this weekend is an article by Ruth Marcus, one of your favorite people to be on the show I know, entitled, I usually ignore the sexism and ageism directed at me. Now I'm calling it out. Apparently, a columnist, a conservative columnist named Eddie Scary, wrote an article where he rebuttaled some of the things that Ruth Marcus said, but instead of actually rebutting what she said, he called her a Strega Nona. Strega Nona is an old witch character who was created by Tommy DePaolo. Now, as I said to my sister-in-law, who originally sent me this article, I would rather be called old, ugly, and smart than be young, hip, and stupid. Thank you.
1: It was a great piece by Ruth.
2: I love this piece so much. Go, Ruth. She called him out in such a delicious, perfect way.
1: that is our show for today the gap Fest is produced today by kevin bendis Shane will be back next week our researcher is bridget dunlap our theme music is by they might be giants and we're going to have john flansberg from they might be giants on the podcast one of these days to talk about our theme music actually in, in a few weeks ben richmond is senior director for podcast operations ben and i finally met ben great to meet you alicia montgomery is the vp of audio of Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? If you're John Dickerson, you're probably really tired. Emily is the most productive person I know. And yet John is more productive than Emily. And it's incredible. John has now added another job. Or maybe it's now his main job. I don't even know. So John does the Gabfest. He does, he writes books. He is a writer for The Atlantic. And of course, his main job is he is at CBS News. And he now has a whole daily show, CBS News Primetime, with John Dickerson. And we're here for you, John, to hear about it. So what is... CBS News primetime with John Dickerson.
0: (laughs) Well, it's an hour of television, except it's not even television. It's an hour show from seven to eight, but um, can be watched afterwards on your um, various video on demand locations. Um, But basically you watch it through the CBS News app or through your Roku or the apps on your TVs. So you can watch it on your computer, on your phone, on your um, smart TV. And it's basically an attempt to, uh, tell the story of the day, but not just what happened in that day, but what's important, um, that might be happening the next day and the day after that. And it's interviews. It's, um, some essay-ish writing now and again. And it's my hope is basically that, and what the show has been so far is I wake up in the morning and the team that I work with, um, we just look at the news and say, what are the things we're most interested in? If what's happening you know, in Jackson, we wanna to talk to the mayor. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are meeting next week. What's that about? It felt to me immediately like the military wing of the Autocrats Club that Ann Applebaum talked about on this show with us when she wrote that cover story on the, um, for the Atlantic. And it, it's basically the instinct we have, which is like, this is an interesting thing. Let's go talk to somebody about it. And we get to do that. The booking team at CBS is wonderful. I can say, I want to go, I want to talk about the electrical grid in California and they will go find somebody who will talk about the electrical grid. And so it's, it's basically a vehicle for my curiosity. And, and I, originally I was just doing it to, um, kind of, Uh, you know, help out the folks over at the streaming news network. But then I found that the people who work on the show, it is a small but mighty crew, um, had the same kinds of instincts I had. And that was to just be curious and try and tell the story in the right proportion, in the right order, and in in its wholeness.
1: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.